The Local Youth Worker is a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. Since 1972, RYM has sought to reach and equip youth for Christ. And this podcast seeks to reach and equip those parents and youth workers who share that same desire. For more information on our student conferences, youth leader training, or resources, visit rym.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, this is episode 352, and I have Linda and Lynn with me again. Um, hey, how's it going? Good. Um, so we've been talking about essentials of a youth room over the past several episodes, and we're still uh, continuing along this kind of essentials theme, but we're talking about essentials of a youth retreat today. Um, Lynn, how about you You kick this off for us? What, what's an essential of a youth retreat for you? I'm such a wet blanket when, <laughs> when I was thinking of this, and I was like, um, I think an essential of a youth retreat is sleep. Like <laughs> that is my thing. I, we don't do, I told them in my interview when I was interviewing for this job, like I don't do all nighters. Um, I, that's the closest I've ever come to killing a student. So I, <laughs> I just like nobody's their best when they're working on two hours of sleep. And I want my students to enjoy every day of camp. I want them to enjoy one another. And I know for me, like it's not, um, it's not just that, oh, I want everybody in the room so I can go to sleep. No, I've seen the difference in students when they, when they like, yeah, let's stay up all night. And then they're just not, they can't enjoy camp fully the next day. And so mm-hmm. I'm the wet blanket at camp. That's the, okay, guys, like you have to be inside at this time. And then when lights go out at this time, it's really lights go out. And I, I haven't had any girls to my face, at least tell me like that really like dampened <laughs> my camp experience. Like, no, we all enjoy each other the next day at the level you can of exhaustion, you know, that you're working at. <laughs> but, <laughs> so sleep is an essential of a youth retreat for me. Okay, look, that is an awesome answer. Um, definitely, definitely did not think of that as as an answer. Uh, I'm all about sleep. Um, I mean, my 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 follow up, and I agree. I, I think it's it's yeah, vitally important. I mean, <laughs> we will die if we don't have enough sleep. So yeah, sleep is an important thing. Um, my follow-up is going to be, okay, how do your students receive that? You just said they receive it well. Do you find that like incoming students who had never been on a retreat and you kind of make that statement the first night, are they kind of like rolling their eyes and looking around, but they see older students who are okay with it? I mean, talk us through that a little bit. I'm just kind of curious. Oh yeah. You got to create a culture that understands. <laughs> and so that's what we have done. Yeah. It's normally the younger girls. And I mean, there are a few older girls who just love to chat and I would have been that girl in school too. Like, and as a teenage girl, I love to just talk with my girlfriends, especially like the ones who don't have siblings and they don't get to do that. Right. They're just like, this is so fun. And, um, but they, they do get on board pretty quickly. Um, when, uh, they see the other students are just realizing, okay, this is this is a, a rule for everybody. It's not just that, well, that one you have to be inside and quiet because you're a middle schooler. Like, no, it's a rule for everybody. And the leaders also really appreciate it who go on the trips with me. Um, and so it's been, uh, it is something that we've had to create a culture of this. My first retreat was the hardest one of getting the girls to like realize this isn't me just being a party pooper. It's me saying like, hey, I know I'm not my best when I don't get sleep. And you know what? You don't get a lot of sleep because you're either like you like we don't sit on sit in our bed and scroll. 
because Prey Slam, the camp, one of the camps we go to, there is no reception. So that's not an option. So um, in one of the episodes uh, in the past week, Linda was talking about like the importance of rest. And so giving students kind of being that like that excuse for them to get rest because they're not the party pooper that who wants to go to bed at 11. You know, it's, oh, it's the leader. She made us all, I'll take the hit. I'm fine with not being cool. Like it's fine. <laughs> Um, so students have, have pretty much gotten on board, but we've, we've created a culture now over the past yeah. five years of this is the rule. That, that's a really good answer. And I love how you're just going about it, creating a culture. Linda, I'd love to hear you just kind of respond to that. Yeah, I actually think the longer I have been in student ministry, the more I have seen students who are just constantly exhausted because they don't get enough sleep. And in my mind, like, yeah, this is an increasingly important part of a retreat. Um, I definitely have seen retreats where um, it's the norm for students to stay up till three in the morning. And then in a few cases, students um, stayed home from school on Monday. And I just thought, man, like, what are, what are we doing when we're creating something that students can't even go to school the next day because they're so worn out when they're already worn out mm -hmm. from everything that's going on um, and all that life is demanding of them. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely like I could go on and on about the health like effects of sleep and how important that is. And I have a ring that trap like tracks my sleep because uh, I care about it. Uh, but you no, know, I, I think this is genuinely important. And, you know, there's always those students who it's hard to get them to go to sleep because they'll be giggly or whatever. Once you get them to bed, I actually like pro tip. This is free. Um, there are podcasts that are like bedtime stories and there'll be bedtime stories that are not like fairy tales for kids. I mean, I'm sure those exist too, but they're more like geared towards adults. Um, and so there's one I found a while ago called um, I think it's called nothing much happens, but it's this woman who will share stories in which nothing much happens. It'll literally be like, she's walking <laughs> through the woods and she's just describing what that experience was like for her and the things she was thinking about while she was doing that. And she has such a soothing voice that by the mm -hmm. time she gets to the end of it, most of my students have fallen asleep, but then she'll tell it a second time much more slowly, just in case they haven't all, but I've never needed to do that. And so I'll have, like, I've used that on a few, like, RYM camps and stuff like that. And students will tell me later, like, yeah, I was totally out before wow. they even finished. That's so, awesome. Just saying, if you have trouble with that, try something like that. Man, that is so good. Um, I feel like we're getting so much information in this small amount of time. So, look, I will be sure. Let's um, look up that podcast and we'll put it in the show notes to this episode so people can find that podcast you're, you're referencing. I love the idea of sleep on a youth retreat. Uh, yes, that's that's awesome. Um, we need to go ahead and, and break and we'll have more with the two of you talking about um, the Facebook article that we talked about last week. All right, everybody, I am back with Linda and Lynn. Um, and I, I didn't want to brag last week, but did you guys notice I got your names right? Uh, that, that whole segment? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh -huh. So good. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to, you know, brag too much, but I was I was pleased with myself. Uh, we'll see. I probably just <laughs> jinxed myself for, for this segment. Um, but it, for those who tuned in, uh, you know, last week we were discussing an article that was in The Atlantic entitled The Dangerous Experiment on Teen Girls. It's written by Jonathan Haidt. Um, and I should have said this last week, but um, 
there will be a link in the show notes to that article. Uh, so be sure to check that out this week if you want to read the, the article in its entirety. Um, Linda, Linda, I thought this week we just kind of talked specifically about uh, your own ministries, kind of what you're seeing personally, but then also with students. Um, I wanted to begin, he, he highlights in the article kind of four cases you could make about the, the harm of, of Instagram. And uh, I'll just read his little um, sentence here. He says, the available evidence suggests that Facebook's products have probably harmed millions of girls. He says, if public officials want to make that case, it could go like this. And he says, in the first place, um, he says, harm to teens is occurring on a massive scale. Uh, in the second place, he says, the timing points to social media. In the third place, he says, the victims point to Instagram. And then in the fourth place, no other specific is equally plausible. So I thought maybe we could kind of walk through uh, some of the cases that he makes and some of the, the stats. Um, and then again, next week, we, we might can talk a little bit more about solutions. Uh, but maybe just, just starting there. He says the harm to teens, to teens is occurring on a massive uh, scale. Um, Lind, Linda, who wants to just kind of chime in on that, that first point that, that he's making? Uh, it could be some stats that he says there, uh, just anything that jumped out to you. Uh, from that first point. Anybody want to jump in? Yeah. So he's talking about some stats um, of, you know, teen depression, anxiety, um, even some like self-harm. I think uh, some other places in the article, it talks about body image, whatnot. It's interesting for me to think about this because I mentioned this a little bit last week, but the students that are most involved in my ministry right now are not as active on social media as the um, probably average teenage girl, but I am seeing this. Um, I am seeing way increased um, rates of all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I was just thinking about like, what, what does that mean that I'm seeing that even with students who aren't as active on social media? Um you know, I think it's possible that um, there's a lot of factors there, but like maybe the way that social media works and making teen girls more aware of, for instance, like how they look, it it's seeped into parts of life that, you know, st students who aren't even on social media are being affected by it because everyone mm -hmm. else is so hyper aware of it on social media. Um, and I think that there's... Uh, there's a lot that social media aggravates. Um, and at the same time, it also removes some of the things that might help us if we were struggling because it gives us um, this false sense of being connected instead of real connection with other people. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just think that even apart from people who are really active on social media, I'm seeing this. And so how much worse must, must it be uh, amongst teen girls who are very active on social media? Um, that that's really concerning to me. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said that even those who aren't on it are being impacted by it. And I know that that's a point uh, Chris Martin has made um, that, you know, social media is impacting all of all of our culture, you know, those who aren't on it at all, it's still just shaping the way, you know, <laughs> other that we interact with other people, everything. So it's like those who aren't even using it are, are impacted by it. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, Lynn, do you have any thoughts? 
Yeah, that's uh, um, what Linda said. I read a New York Times article about, um, I mean, basically the same findings, but from a New York Times angle. Um, and they used the phrase inauthentic interactions, which is what Linda mm -hmm. kind of just hit on, which that's so true, right? Like it's, even if they did see a post or um, they're probably not reading the captions and they're not really engaging with it. Again, it's like an uncritical, like it's, it's like when somebody's listening, but their eyes are wandering off mm -hmm. somewhere else, like, you know, like, okay, you're not really like engaging <laughs> mm -hmm. here. And, and that's unfortunately becoming, um, as our digital presence increases, especially with uh, virtual school and virtual all of these things. It's so easy to like, I'm gonna minimize the screen and do something else. Mm -hmm. Like our, our, our interactions are becoming so inauthentic and so like half done. Um, but also very similar to what Linda's seeing is just two Sundays ago during um, our D group, there are discipleship groups, there are small groups in our youth group, two girls in the same grade, um, eighth, ninth grade, they both, um, no, eighth grade, they both, neither one of them has social media and they both started talking about as we were um, getting the prayer requests, they they both were lamenting about the way that they're viewing their bodies and they feel about their bodies and how insecure they are right now. And, and neither one of them has social media. So it's not a Instagram causes this, right? You know, like um, it does, but it's not a necessary, uh, Instagram's not necessary for girls to question their bodies. That's unfortunately residue of sin. Um, and I believe um, part of the massive, as Jonathan uses that word in the article, the massive influence it's having is because the conversations people are having involve these sorts of things right mm -hmm. of um, the girls or people are talking about what's happening online or what's happening on Instagram or what's trending or who's the new influencer or who's the new viral thing and so those conversations are involving people who don't have social media and I think that's part of the like well like the trickle effect of well that's how it's getting into these other girls heads and also something that um, we'll talk about either this week or another week, but um, <laughs> there's a certain age, and I think it is middle school, that um, girls really start to listen to what the women around them are saying, and not necessarily the other girls. Yes, the other girls, but it's because the other girls are listening to the older women around them, what they're saying, and this is when they're like, oh, I'm bad because I ate that thing today, or I was good today because I didn't eat this thing. Like, just the way we're talking about our bodies starts to their minds are really taking that on like they're really listening to those things and it's starting to impact them around that middle school age when they're really aware of what their parents mm. are, are saying um, I talked with a friend who um, she went viral a couple of months ago and uh, we went to college together and she struggled with something that we'll also talk about later but body dysmorphia and asking I asked her like hey when was the first time that you like really felt deeper than insecure about your body and she said I remember when I think I was nine my mom told me to suck it in when I was taking a photo and oh, wow. yeah like yeah so just even things like that of like that's that's around middle school age like right around that fifth fifth grade sixth grade age are their brains are starting to grab things now mm -hmm. um and that's part of the massive effect um mm -hmm. that's beyond just what we're seeing online for those who don't view online things yeah, Lynn, I'm so glad you're saying that. And let's be sure to, to come back to that if we, if we don't, you know, this week um, for sure next, because that's such an important point. And I think it does tie into kind of 
uh, his second point of the timing pointing to social media, uh, because he says, you know, by 2014, 80% of high school students said they used a social media platform on a daily basis. And of that 80%, 24% said that they were on, I'm sorry, they were online almost constantly. Um, and so you think if that, if there's a percentage of specifically here, teenage girls that are on almost constantly, of course, it's going to, um, permeate their conversation. Uh, it's going to rub off on students who might not be, uh, you know, on any kind of social media platform. Um, what are some thoughts you had on that, on that second point? It blew my mind. And I like the last thing that the last sentence he has, or the last few sentences of when, a, uh, and this is part of, he's talking as to like why it doesn't affect boys as um, the way it does a girls. And he says, when a boy steps away from the console, like a gaming console, he does not spend the next few hours worrying about what other playing players are saying about him instagram in contrast can loom in a girl's mind even when the app is not open driving hours of obsessive thought worry and shame and i had never thought about that before Mm -hmm. yeah like boys they think about like either like where they can find cheat codes or like how they can get to the next level right but it's it's rarely if um maybe never the like oh i wonder if they thought i talked too much in like the you know multiplayer (laughs) game or i don't know gaming language but (laughs) um yeah but girls it is like they're just waiting for that that like count and that com those comments to pop up and see well did this get the reaction i wanted like and they're thinking about it um yeah constantly i thought that was so Mm -hmm. um so poignant and such a good um point um and then when uh he says, notably, girls became much heavier users of the new visually oriented platforms, primarily Instagram, blah, 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 and all those things. Um, whenever I hear like visually mm-hmm. oriented, I think of all of these silly, not necessarily silly, but maybe overemphasized things when it came to purity culture when we were growing up about like mm-hmm. guys are visually, you know, mm-hmm. uh, oriented or whatever. So girls, you got to be, you know, so that also makes sense of like, yes, like guys girls want the guys to be taking this in and so this is a perfect platform to play into their weakness that also plays on girls weaknesses like how mm-hmm. sin is interacting with sin here I just, mm-hmm. um yeah that triggered that in my mind i thought shoot yeah. like just a vicious cycle mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and that that was such a good point that, that he's bringing up of just kind of the 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 lasting effect of of just getting on these these platforms uh linda what are some some thoughts yeah, I want to connect with uh, what Lynn just said with a quote actually earlier in the, in the article, which I thought yeah. was so good. So kind of in the intro, he says social media, particularly Instagram, which displaces other forms of interactions among teens, puts the size of their friend group on public display mm-hmm. and subjects their physical appearance to the met- to the hard metrics of likes and comment counts. It takes the worst parts of middle school and glossy women's magazines and intensifies them. Mm. Yeah. Like that is exactly what you're hitting on. It takes Mm -hmm. the worst parts of middle school and intensifies them to where you can't escape them um, even when you're home. And not only, you know, without social media, we would be thinking about all those things anyway, but then it's just bombarding us and and coming home with us. because we're, we're looking at the, the likes and the comments and, and all of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you read that because it seemed like I heard somebody, somebody else say, say that, uh, yeah, social media just pours gasoline on all of our insecurities. <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, that, that's exactly what this article is giving testimony to. Um, I, I thought it was interesting. I, I'd love for you two to, to respond to this in his third point when it says that Instagram scored as the most harmful of the social media platforms. And it said even, you know, over Snapchat. And he says, you know, uh, Snapchat's filters keep the focus on the face, whereas Instagram focuses heavily on the body and lifestyle. And I thought, you know, as you mentioned lifestyle, talking more about maybe identity as well. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, just kind of comparing Instagram to Snapchat and it being, you know, the most harmful. I don't interact with Snapchat, uh, partly because I didn't think it was a, a safe thing as a youth worker of just like the, that feels risky to me. Um, when people can send you images and they just disappear. Um, uh, but also I couldn't figure it out. And this was like years ago before it had filters or anything like that. So I just didn't bother with it, but I know that my students, I mean, they snap all the time. Right. And, um, I'm, I had never really thought about how I, what Jonathan says is very, again, like, um, it's a good point to make of, yeah, like that focuses on the face and then Instagram is more about this, like this lifestyle and almost, and even in a false sense or like this veneer of, uh, um, uh, curating, uh, a, what is it called? A, a visual archive of this is the life I lead, right. Um, that lasts longer than just the, yeah, you can find that anytime and, and look at my, um, my lifestyle and, uh, how, how great it is, of course, for the most part and, um, be jealous of it. Whereas, mm -hmm. um, and anybody can do that. Right. And, and my understanding of Snapchat is you, you send it to the people you want to send it to, um, which is like, Oh, I'm going to send my snap to the people like who know me the best or, you know, whatever, I don't know how that works, but, um, but Instagram is like anybody can scroll and that's what I want. Like I want anybody to find these things and like it and comment, um, whereas Snapchat, you don't get any, uh, like you don't get any statistical data about how you're doing mm -hmm. in life from it. Um, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Linda, what about you with, with Snapchat and Instagram? Yeah. I, I underlined that quote that you pointed out how Snapchat, um, focuses on the face, Instagram more on body and lifestyle. I think I had just never quite put my finger on that before. And it's such a good point to make. And that experiment they mentioned right after that, where they had some people use Instagram, some use Facebook, some play a simple video game for seven minutes. And they found that those who used Instagram, but not Facebook showed decreased body satisfaction, decreased positive affect and increased negative affect. Like that is just such a good uh, I don't know, study to show us like, we're, we're not coming up with this stuff ourselves, like really like mm -hmm. Instagram somehow there's something about it. Um, that, yeah, I don't know, is, is, uh, egging this on, um, you know, so yeah. Cause each, each platform is designed differently. Mm -hmm. There's something about Instagrams that that's particularly bad for that. And seven yeah. minutes, right? Yeah, like that's crazy. Minutes. That's how long it takes, like you know, to wait for your coffee at Starbucks, or or like if your mom runs outside and like you're not supposed to be on your phone, but then you get your phone for like seven minutes. That's mm -hmm. all. Like that is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Oh. It we is. use it for way more than seven minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ignore the fifteen minute timer. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So yeah, let's think back to that scale that we said last week, uh, one to 10, you know, of <laughs> uh, Instagram being the devil. Um, no, it's it's not. But I mean, yeah, it's it's hard as you read an article like this just to see the evidence. And he does kind of, you know, as we're about to start closing this out and that fourth point that there's no other suspect um, that's equally plausible, he says, you know, because you look at even some of the disasters that have occurred, you know, 9-11 to school shootings to other things where um, you would think, okay, well, it's not just in America that, that that these struggles are taking place, that, you know, it's in Canada and the UK, and you're seeing kind of the, the stats being equalized across all sorts of, um, you know, continents. Um, and so he says at the very end, you know, correlation does not prove causation, but nobody has yet found an alternative explanation <laughs> for these stats. And so he's saying, you know, the evidence seems to to point to Instagram. Um, specifically. And so, look, I know we're needing to close uh, this section out. And uh, I guess, you know, as we're breaking up these segments, this might be kind of the doom and gloom uh, segment. <laughs> um, uh, we, we do want to next week talk about uh, some possible solutions, some conclusions we can draw from this. Uh, and so I do think that even though it's it's hard to talk about some of this sometimes, and it can sound kind of doom and gloom, it hopefully can push back on just the uncritical way in which we utilize some of these platforms and can just help raise awareness. So Lynn, Linda, thanks again for being with us this week. This episode of The Local Youth Worker is brought to you by For Life Apparel. For Life Apparel is a new clothing brand whose mission is to provide high-quality clothing and accessories that spread the message of the worth and dignity of the unborn. They donate 25% of all profits to providing free ultrasounds for moms considering abortion. Use the code REFORMED15 for 15% off today. That's Reformed 15 for 15% off today. They have clothing for men, clothing for women, bags, all sorts of accessories. Be sure to visit forlifeapparel.com for more information. Uh, today, I welcome Dr. Mark Dever to the podcast. Dr. Dever, welcome. Thanks, John. You can call me Mark. All right. Um, Mark is the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He is the president of Nine Marks Ministries. Uh, he has taught at a number of seminaries and speaks around the world. He is the author of numerous books, just to name a few. What is a Healthy Church? The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And The Church, The Gospel Made Visible. Uh, last but not least, uh, you're a husband and father. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about your family? I have a wife, Connie, whom I met at Duke University back in the 19, late 70s, early 80s. We got married in 82. And then we have two children, uh, Annie and Nathan. Uh, Annie was born when we were living in Boston, and Nathan was born when we were living in England. And uh, Annie is married to Dave. They live in Oregon. And Nathan is married to Amanda. And they live in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, so look, before we talk about your your teen years, I'd love for you just to, to tell us a bit about where you were born and raised. I was born in Madisonville, Kentucky uh, in 1960 uh, in a, I'd say, a nominally Christian home, uh, parents going to a Southern Baptist church while I was a small child. And then by the time I'm like much into grade school, they really just stopped going. Um, look, I, I was about to call you Dr. Dever, but you've already told me to say Mark. So I'll try, I'll try, try to do better. Um, 
Well, Thank you, you, Brother John. <laughs> yeah, you're someone who's known by many. I've said, I mean, you're, you're teaching at seminaries, you've uh, spoken all over the world, you've written books, but I would assume that only a handful of people know Mark Dever, the teenager. Um, tell us a bit about your, your teen years. Uh, how would your family describe you as a teenager, your friends, or even you yourself? Describe what kind of a teenager you were. Are we thinking more 11-year-old, 13-year-old, or 19-year-old? You're going to get different answers. Yeah, well, let's try to cover the spectrum there. Maybe all those. Oh, uh, pick one. Okay, middle school, high school. Let's focus on that. Well, that's when I became a Christian. So if you take the early middle school, high school, I am a very definite agnostic. And if you take later high school, I'm a very definite Christian. So let's talk about the agnostic Mark. Um, give us a little bit of a preview of what Mark Dever, the agnostic, was like. Argumentative. Uh, and I thought that um, there was not proof in my own experience that there was a God. And I wasn't therefore ready to conclude that there was no God because I didn't have all experience. So, you know, could be a giant hiding behind the moon. But uh, I thought the safest path intellectually was just to admit that I'm agnosis without knowledge. So I was an agnostic. And, and what was it? Um, who was it who shared the gospel with you uh, for the first time? And uh, how drastically did your life change after that? I think I heard the gospel from my earliest years. Extended family were Christians. Uh, when I'm going to a, a Southern Baptist church, we brought there's a child Sunday school, vacation Bible school. I'm sure I heard the gospel uh, many times. Tell us a little bit about your conversion. Let's zoom in on that a little bit. Um, what was it? I mean, you said middle school, part of middle school. Yeah. You're an agnostic. Then you became. A That's going to be 12, 13, 14. Uh, now, I was an unusual kid. By the time I'm 10, I've read the Harvard Classic series. I don't know if you know that. It was a series of books that they would sell in the 50s and 60s with uh, a set of encyclopedias. And, you know, so it, it included everything from literary stuff like. Uh, the Rubiat by Omar Khayyam, to the Quran, to the five Socratic uh, dialogues of Plato, to, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations. So I, I had read through all of that and was uh, a curious kid, read a lot and enjoyed reading and um, thought that the answers that could be found would be found through me just thinking and trying to get more information and learn more. Hmm. And so the, you said at the age of 10, you were reading some yeah. of these? Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah, so the, all, all of those, just to be clear, John, all of those. Wow. Okay. So um, I'm assuming I know the answer maybe uh, to this next one. Uh, and in most school yearbooks, it's been a while since I've looked at a school yearbook, but you'll find a list of most athletic, most likely to succeed, most courteous class clown and others, which category would best describe you? They didn't have those at my high school. We didn't, we didn't do that. Oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> maybe just think if they would have had that, what, what do you think your student body would have voted Mark Dever? Oh, most likely to carry a briefcase to high school. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess I've got to ask, is that, is that real? Did you carry a briefcase to high school? Uh, well, first of all, John, did you? I did not. I was no. not uh, that type of teenager. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I did. Okay. Wow. Um, you know, as we're thinking of milestones with, with teenagers, uh, getting your driver's license is a major milestone. Uh, oh, you, I remember it well. Okay. I was going to ask, what, what do you remember about getting your license, learning to drive that entire process? Uh, 
Uh, I remember I'd never taken any driving classes, just mom and dad. I would ride with them and drive with them. And uh, just a few, you know, I, I guess I'd driven a large tractor mower around our, we had a very large yard and field. I'd driven that around forever. So driving a car wasn't that much different. Uh, so it was easy and yeah, passed the first time and had a 1973 Buick Centurion, four barrel, 455 engine. Very pleased. It's a good car. Oh yeah. And so I was going to ask, was that your first car? Yeah. Okay. And then you grew up on a farm as well. So talk, talk to us well, about this tractor a little bit. Not, not really a farm. It was uh, just a, a house south of Madisonville, Kentucky. Uh, three acres of yard, 40 acres of field behind it, 40 acres of woods. So yeah, uh, there were cows there. We didn't own them. We owned the farm. We owned the field. Uh, my sister had a horse that she went off to college, so I had to feed and water. Um, yeah, so rural, but not really a farm. Okay. As, as we're going back to the car, um, what, what was your you, first car? Um, mine was a Ford Taurus, 1986 Ford Taurus. Um, All right. it would honk when you turn left. So, okay. Yeah. I had to pull the, the, uh, plug out because yeah it was just going off randomly uh when i drove did around. it live up to its bull-like name <laughs> um it it didn't really um you okay. would think but yeah did, did yeah not. um yeah yeah and <laughs> well my my buick centurion lived up to its centurion name it was okay. it was tough and fast all right and then what would you have been listening to when you were driving that car oh beach boys all right. Um, Doobie Brothers. Yeah. Whatever's going on at the time. All right. So big classic rock fan. Yeah. Uh, now or then? I guess both. Well, then it was popular music. So it wouldn't be classic rock. It was popular music. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody came out when I was a junior by okay. Queen. So, you know, ABBA was big. Yeah. All right. And did you have any posters on your wall growing up? And if you did, what posters would have been on oh, your wall? Oh, man. I got to think back posters. I think I probably just had like nature shots with uh, funny sayings or uh, maps. I love maps. I had a big world map all framed. So more, I didn't have any rock bands. Gotcha. All right. Um, How about you? Did you have any, did you have any music posters up? No, I did not. What's surprising is I actually had a poster of Michael Jordan, um, but I was not an NBA fan. It was just, gives testimony to his influence on the culture. He was just everywhere. Um, wow. Yeah, which I know the, the documentary recently, The Last Dance, just I think they had an entire episode just talking about that, just what an impact he had on the, the popular culture, even for those uh, who weren't big basketball fans like myself. Um, but speaking of sports, what, what are some extracurriculars you were involved in? Or kind of looking back, what extracurriculars do you wish you would have been involved in? Uh, well, which ones I wish I would have been involved in. I got, I got, I got nothing there. So I, that, that's a zero, um, <laughs> that I was involved in. Oh my, I, you know, I read a lot. Uh, I was, oh, I, I was involved in various clubs. I was, you know, president of various clubs or county, county outfits or, uh, Christian self ones I became a Christian, uh, state and national things. Um, yeah. What, what, what were some of the clubs that you were president of? 
uh, would be like youth and government club kind of thing, uh, mock United Nations, uh, mock U.S. Congress, all the kind of government geeky stuff like that. All right. And uh, I was we, very interested in history and politics. Okay. Um, did you start a book club just with what a voracious reader you, you were and, and are? No, I just read a lot. No, just read a lot. <laughs> wow. So I guess maybe take us through a, through a day. Um, you wake up in the morning. Do you just pick a book up in hand? You're eating breakfast before school, go to school, read a book in the afternoons, evenings. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, John, I think you're not appreciating how long ago this is and how pedestrian the memories are. So I'm going to be making this up. But I, I think uh, make it up. That's I, I think probably about 545 I'm getting up. Uh, I think I'm uh, having a quiet time. Uh, I think I'm uh, probably making sure I got all my stuff ready for school. Um, then I'm getting to school and school's getting out at three. And what am I doing then? I mean, oh, I mean, I, I may be going to the YMCA to lift. Uh, I, you know, if it's summer, I'm maybe playing tennis. Uh, or hmm, doing some yard work, uh, getting homework done. At 5.30, I'm watching the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Uh, dinner with the family. Uh, then maybe watching a little TV, uh, reading in my room or doing some with friends, uh, and then probably late night watching Johnny Carson and then going to sleep. <laughs> All right, Johnny Carson. Um, tell, tell me some of those uh, early role models in your life. Uh, this could be parents. And I forget, did you say you have siblings? I have one older sister. Okay. Uh, probably... Um, Again, once I became a Christian, I think probably the pastor of my church growing up, uh, I uh, appreciated him. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think some older relatives, I think there were uh, there were a number. I grew up in the same small town that my parents were born in and their parents were born in. So I just had extended family everywhere. And the. Um, uh there was quite a contrast between some of the the older relatives who were not Christians and some of them who were Christians. And uh, the ones who were Christians, I think, ended up being great, great role, role models for me in their trust in the Lord through some very adverse circumstances. Hmm. If you have to point to one significant childhood event that the Lord used to shape you, uh, what what comes to mind? What's kind of that one event, if you look back on your life, that's so significant? I mean, other than my conversion as a teenager? Or even that, I'd love to kind of hone in on that a little bit more and hear more about that. Well, that that took a while. So that was me doing a lot of reading and then uh, ending up concluding that I think the resurrection happened. Hmm. Uh, and then thinking that all of this is true. And then really just being convicted and converted. So um do, do you remember what a, it was that you were reading when when that oh yeah yeah john i could i could do this for two hours that's, that's yeah good. i can give you as much i can give you as much detail as you want <laughs> uh yeah i so i started when i when i started realizing that life was about more than grades and i think this is like sixth seventh eighth grade because i was always very good at getting grades and getting school school was really easy for me um 
I was always curious. I always wanted to know, understand more about pretty much everything. Um, I, I began wondering more of the purpose. Why be alive? Why have this, this life? You know, I, I would look at my hand and I would say, okay, this is very soon going to be just uh, a skeleton in a box. So what do I want to do before that time? Uh, so I was always kind of morbid in that sense and fixed on purpose. And um, which made me look first at philosophies. So I read various philosophies and then it made me, uh, those left me unsatisfied, just thinking like, you know, that's Gide's way of thinking about something or that's Kierkegaard's way of thinking about something, but how do I know it's true? Uh, so then that made me look at religions. And so I started looking at different religions and I read through holy books uh, like the Bhagavad Gita, and uh, everything just seemed explicable naturally. I didn't really have to have the supernatural to explain anything. And that's what then bumped me over to thinking, well, maybe I should look at Christianity, which I kind of thought I knew already, so that's why I didn't look at it earlier, because I thought, well, just growing up, having gone to church some, I think I know this. But so I started reading through the Gospels, and it was reading through the Gospels that I really became a little confused by Jesus. Um, I couldn't really understand why, if he was just the person presented in the Gospels, uh, why a few days after he was killed did his disciples all get together and start telling the same strange story about him being raised from the dead. And then they they didn't hang around in Jerusalem and build this kind of psychologically self-reinforcing community, but they scattered all over the world and told this same strange story about him being raised from the dead. You know, why did they do this? Uh, and so I kept trying to, I read and reread the Gospels and early chapters of Acts trying to figure this out. And I couldn't really come up with a good answer. And it finally hit me that I was reading the Gospels like I were an atheist. Uh, like I knew the supernatural stuff weren't true and Jesus' claims about being God weren't true. And I was kind of ashamed before myself intellectually. Uh, I was always proud of being an agnostic rather than an atheist. I thought an atheist was the most stupid of all positions because at least the Christian or the religious person claimed to have a source of absolute knowledge. And then they gave you absolute knowledge. But, you know, the, the atheist admits they have no source of absolute knowledge and yet they assert it, which is why I thought agnosticism was just always clearly superior. But so then I realized that, I'm reading this like I'm an atheist, like I know there's no God, and I've never said I know there's no God. So, okay, let me just say, what if what if there is a God? What if all this stuff Jesus teaches is true? And so then I read through the Gospels, and I would say that time, it was just like getting the right line in a program, computer program right. The whole thing just ran. It just, wow. Jesus made sense. Christianity made sense. History made sense. My life kind of made sense. Uh, yeah, and so that's where I was converted. Um, yeah, and when I was in I think, late junior high school, early high school. Hmm. So, so after this conversion, I mean, did you run into your parents' bedroom? Did you tell them this? Did you go to a friend? To talk no, to? It, it was not a. It was not a one point. It wasn't. It was not a one second thing. I mean, this was. A, this was. I'm. I'm summarizing stuff that happened over years, months, weeks, days. Um. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. So, so summarizing, you know, all of that together, do you remember your first sense of a call to ministry of, you know, not only do I believe this, but, but now I want to be in the pulpit telling people about this. 
Well, by my nature, I was in the pulpit telling people about this. It's just like if I became convinced about something, I'm going to be talking about it. Um, so that's it may be a question of how or in what way, but it won't be a question if. Uh, so, yeah, I immediately began to. I think a, a girl in one of my classes, her dad was pastor at a Nazarene church. And she said, hey, I told my dad about you. Will you come preach at our church? And so I went to preach at this little church of the Nazarene, uh, you know, in the country. And, um, yeah, uh, preached, I think, on John 3.16 or something. Um, so I, I preached at First Methodist Church in town. I mean, I started speaking all over the place. So I was, I was immediately a... Uh, a proponent of Jesus publicly. Hmm. Uh, but I, I was intending at that time to go more into politics. I had always been very interested in politics. How, how would your teachers describe you? I'm curious if you say that you're, you're, you're not going to be quiet about certain things and you just chuckled right as I asked that question. Um, how would you they know, describe if you? I were, if I were a teacher and I had me in class in eighth or ninth grade, it'd be a real mixed blessing, you know? <laughs> I would have a really uh, involved student who'd be interested, but he would look at me like a peer and would kind of play with me publicly mm-hmm. in a way that if I'm a teacher, I don't know if I'm going to appreciate that much. Um, so uh, I, I can give you a myriad of examples. I mean, m- uh, Mrs. Marshall, math teacher, comes in in like eighth or ninth grade and she's, she's dyed her hair. And uh, I just, put up my hand and I just said, Mrs. Marshall, is it molting season? Oh. <laughs> uh, and, and I guess that most of the kids might not know what the word means, but I knew she would know. Um, and I think I did crueler things than that, that I won't recount. Um, yeah. So I, I, I regret that. Um, mm. Yeah. I, you know, I also, I remember an eighth grade teacher correcting me on a word that I used uh, in a paper and um you know, when I got that paper back, I just walked over to the dictionary, opened it up to the word, walked with my paper in one hand, opened the spot where she'd circled that word, the dictionary opened, and I just handed them, put them both on her desk, and she looked at her. Uh, I keep going with these stories, John. You want more of this? This, I, I is, this is great. I'm just curious. Did she give you credit for that? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but let's hear some more uh, of these stories. Uh, when uh, I, I was writing this one research paper in like ninth or 10th grade, they were trying to get us ready for college, which I thought, why are you, we're just in high school, leave us alone. But so it was this large 20 page paper or something. I thought there's no way he's going to read this paper. And so right in the middle page of this paper, right in the middle of a sentence, I just, this is on an old typewriter. I just put in a sentence, some butterflies are yellow, had nothing to do with the sentence of this. I was writing or the paragraph was in or the top of the paper but I just put it in. So uh, it's a week or two later, we get the papers back. Mine has an A plus on it or something like that. Uh, all the kids are there at their desks with their papers. I take the paper, I walk up to the teacher's desk. I just lay it on the desk. And uh, I just said, did you read the paper? He said, oh yeah. I said, what'd you say? Oh, I really liked it. I said, really? I said, uh, you know, some butterflies are yellow. And uh, he just looked at me like I was strange. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't blow his cover. I just then knew, yeah, that he didn't really, hmm. he didn't really read it. Wow. So I, I guess maybe even building off of this, um, 
but you could go in another direction as well. If, if you were able to, to sit your younger self down, you know, at a coffee shop, some people say, but I doubt you would have, did you drink coffee back in? in no, I don't now and didn't that. Okay. Um, so if you could sit down, drink tea, water, cup of soda, whatever it is, what are uh, some, chocolate malted? There you go. Okay. Um, yeah. what, what are some things you'd like to tell teenage Mark Dever? Um, some things to, to watch out for, some things to invest in. What, what's a, a truth you think you needed to hear back then? Well, I, I think God in his providence got me really good teaching. So I think I, you know, through books that were recommended and through a pretty faithful pastor of this church that I was going to, uh, yeah, I think I was encouraged to read my Bible, to pray, um, yeah, to try to evangelize, to disciple others. Yeah, I think I was given pretty good guidance. Hmm. Kind of moving more to, to youth culture today. Are there any aspects of teens today and that you, you wish you had access to back in your days as a teenager? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. No. Well, from that reaction, None. what is it about youth None. culture today that you're concerned with that you're, um, well, it's just like, it's like a different, it's like a different world. It's just, I'm not a, not necessarily opposed to it, although I do think it is more challenging for the Christian and just for the human growing up. But it's also, it's just, it's like it's a different country. So I have a friend here who's in our internship from France. And uh, I think that's wonderful. I, I don't, I don't personally want to be from France, but I'm very glad for all the good things he has in France. And sure, assume on the basis of God's kindness and generous character that there are many good things that he's enjoyed there that I've never enjoyed here or didn't enjoy as a young man at his age. So I, I don't bear any envy or covetousness toward the uh, the young, the teenagers of today. I do maybe fear for them in ways that I think they have challenges that I didn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think I it was easier for me to be alone with my thoughts, to be alone with a book, uh, to be thinking uh, substantial things in a way that devices like a you know, looking at a phone constantly these days, I think can threaten. Mm -hmm. uh, and a constant awareness of other people seeing anything you might be thinking or doing. And, and particularly the way kids are being taught to commodify themselves on TikTok or Instagram that I just think, yeah, this is, this is a, uh, a weight, a burden that I don't know that they're morally mature enough normally to be able to bear very well. And I don't know that parents naturally understand them very well uh, because not having had those things themselves. Whereas when I was brought up, other than, I guess, television being more ubiquitous, I think my teenagers would have been much like my parents and theirs, even more like their parents. So I think that, you know, the sort of future shock idea of Alvin Toffler, that the sort of more cha change happening more quickly, I think further separates uh, the generations now than it would have when I was a teenager and then probably more than it was when my parents were teenagers. Mm -hmm. Well, and let's, let's dig into this a little bit more. As you say, you're, you're fearful for, for teens today. And obviously as, as many say, I mean, this is the future of the church. We know that teenagers are members of the church now. Um, but, but as you, you look at some of, I mean, what you just described and always having a device in hand and always, you know, being, uh, curating themselves and, and posting and, and all of this. So what are some of your concerns for the future of the church in light of this culture they're growing up in? 
are there going to be people who have the the basic uh, social maturity and charity of disposition and self-possession and lack of a cultivated fear of man uh, that make for good um, ingredients for uh, Christian uh, mothers and fathers, for Christian uh, deacons and elders. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's up to the job, so I'm not worried in that sense. <laughs> but I think it's a, a challenging thing. Mm -hmm, for sure. If you could, if you had a room filled with teenagers that you walked into, um, what would you like to tell them? What, what, what's, if you could impress one truth upon them, one challenge to them, but what's something you'd like to tell them? Uh, youth is full of great opportunities that will pass with time. Seize the time for the Lord. Serve the Lord while you're young. But let's shift this to, to parents and youth workers just a little bit. I know we're going to be wrapping up before um, too long. Um, speaking to parents first, just looking at the home first, what's the best parenting advice anyone has ever shared with you? Oh, I, I don't do well with superlative questions because then I go into a mental log jam, but let me, uh, or traffic jam, but let me just put in some good advice. <laughs> some good advice. Yeah. Um, something good you've heard about parenting. Good advice about parenting. Uh, love God, love your neighbor. Uh, the two greatest commandments. So, that's always a go. good place to start. <laughs> the, those are good ones right there. Yeah. Well, yeah. well how, how about this? What's an encouragement you'd like to tell parents of, of teenagers? You have two grown children. You've been through, you, you were a teenager yourself. You survived, you survived parenting. Teens. Well, what's some advice you'd like to give parents of teenagers? Uh, realize that today can appear more important than the rest of their lives. And that's not true. Uh, unless some tragedy strikes, you're probably going to have a long time to have a relationship with this person. So uh, don't uh, escalate quickly mm. when you're uh, getting worried or upset or concerned about a situation. Uh, make sure that your kids know what you appreciate about them. Uh, encourage them in good uh, and realize that regardless of where they are with you in the faith, uh, you're their parents and you have a unique role to play in that. And that role can extend and will extend uh, as long as they live, longer than you live. Uh, you will live in their minds and memories uh, when you're gone. So you want to live in such a way that you are commending the gospel, even if you don't live in this life to see them accept the gospel. Hmm. Those are some good words. I needed to hear that uh, today. Um, speaking to youth workers a minute, uh, you're a senior pastor. You have a youth worker. We were, we were speaking. I, I know Charles, um, who works on staff with you at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. What, what are some priorities you would love to give to youth workers speaking to their personal life, not necessarily their life as a youth worker, but kind of behind the scenes, their personal life? What's some priorities you'd like to impress upon youth workers? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Grow in Christ yourself. Uh, make sure the mask is firmly over your own face before you put on the face of the one traveling with you. Uh, don't let ministry be your uh, meat and substance. Uh, let that be the Lord in your relationship with him. Let the ministry come out of the overflow of that very real relationship you have with God. Can you speak to practically? <clears throat> how to guard that, how to balance that with the demands of ministry, the demands of, you know, raising a family in the midst of that, anything from your own experience that you'd love to kind of practically impress upon. 
um, yeah, well, if you're talking about to people who are married and have a family, then you need to think very carefully about how that family fits in with work with kids when the kids are only available in the evening, same time your family is. So yeah, you need to, you and your wife need to be very clearly at one on uh, that this is something we should do. And yes, it will cost us some time in the evening, but then how do we figure out how to rebalance for that and make sure that we can protect uh, meals at home or homework time or bedtime, depending on the age of the kids. Um, and just make sure, especially that uh, your spouse uh, knows that they are your priority and that uh, the youth group can always get another youth worker, but your husband or wife can't get another spouse. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good word. Look, we're, I know we're, we're needing to wrap up. I um, want to give you a last word as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add to all this? Any other thought that's come to mind as we're drawing this to a close? I'll continue to get to know your Bible. Uh, that's where God speaks to us. Uh, read scripture, study it, uh, let it be your meat. And that's what you have to share with others. Dr. Dever, uh, thank you so much for your ministry. Thank you for taking the time to come on this podcast today. I know you're being pulled in a lot of different directions. So I appreciate you sharing your time with us. John, thank you. Oh, come and buy without money. Oh,